On this episode of Leading the Way, I'm joined by Andrew Taylor, Program Director of the Arts Management Program at American University, where he also serves as Associate Professor. In addition to Andrew's teaching and consulting, he recently completed a five-year sponsored research project called Capitalizing Change in the Performing Arts. I invited Andrew to talk with me and share his deep perspective on a critical issue, a critical issue now as arts and cultural leaders strive to rebuild and recover from pandemic times, something called the overhead myth. What's the overhead myth and why are we talking about it? Well, I'm grateful you've chosen to join me today to learn more. Andrew Taylor, thank you for joining me on Leading the Way, TRG's podcast that is about leading the way, thinking our way to a resilient future in arts and culture. I'm so grateful you would make the time with me today. Thanks for being here. I'm thrilled to be with you, Jill. It's nice to see you. You are the um, program director of the Arts Management Program. You're on faculty at American University. You've been there how how long and what's, you know, what's it like leading an, an arts management program in 2023? And yeah, well, I've been here on the faculty at the Arts Management Program at American University for just over a decade now. And before that, I was in Wisconsin running the MBA in arts administration there. Um, What's it like? I think it's what is it like for any industry that involves collective uh, action? It is everything's up in the air. Uh, Some old habits work really well. Some have to be severely questioned and interrogated. Um, And it leads us all to sort of say, well, what is the actual unique value we bring to the world in the way we've chosen to do what we do? And is it worth changing that? That, that, um, during the during the pandemic, we um, did something called TRG 30s. And it was at that time that you probably read Simon Sinek's book, um, The Infinite Game. And he yeah. talks about something called a just cause. And this is a little bit, you know, that that intersects with that that concept. It's not just in in um, education and higher education, is it? It's absolutely a question that businesses and nonprofits and charities have to ask. I think it's actually at the heart of our of our conversation, um, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, you and I met at Banff, I think for the first time in person at the Cultural Leadership Program, which was a wonderful program there. I was um, talking about revenue and relationship management, and you were teaching, I think, broader business practices. Yeah? Is yeah, that- sort of business modeling. How do you think about the logic of your enterprise? Uh, but yeah, I think I knew of you before Banff. It was a great joy to work with you at Banff, uh, and I certainly knew Rick uh, before you, and I think I, I started to be aware of your brilliance um, through Rick. So uh, it's great to be in personal conversation. Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad to remember him any and all the time, and um, I feel I feel the same for sure. Okay, so that um, is a little bit of context. The event that instigated this conversation was um, an article that we both read and that I I had posted on LinkedIn from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which was um, a really, really interesting one that challenged some assumptions about overhead allocation um, and and what the right proportion and um, and and allocation or, or viewpoint on 
overhead should be. I, I posted it, you commented, it ignited a lot of um, conversation and heat. And the provocation that they offered is that actually nonprofits may need to spend a lot more than we think. Uh, I think you and I are going to talk about what the right um, uh, percentage, what the right number is. Our, I, I think our clients are always asking questions like that. Your students may be too, but they said, in fact, um, 35, like think about 35% and um, offered up a, a variety of perspectives on it. I'm curious about what caught y your attention about that article and just, you know, give my listeners here a quick one, two, three take on your take on this conversation. Sure. Well, in the arts management program and in any arts endeavor, the, the how we think about cost and income is kind of central to the game, particularly because we're in a business that is intentionally creating more costs than we can earn back in income. Um, and so uh, this, and I think what draw me attention is it was sort of finally some uh, substantiated research that was trying to make a point that we had been making for decades, uh, that there was a tension between what donors and organized philanthropy believe is appropriate uh, in overhead and what is actually leads to thriving enterprise. Um, so uh, I think it was nice to see some real data pulling from actual organizational information um, and to come up with uh, not the right number, but to suggest that the, the number is meaningful and it's worth thinking about, you know, what percentage, why do we have overhead? What is overhead for? Is it really just a, um, a ceiling that you're not supposed to rise over and not to make a pun? Um, so I think it was nice to have some real data and to see you comment and to see others comment as well about um, let's keep talking about this important topic that we've been droning on about for, for long periods of time without much success. Yeah, and, and for me and us, um, the conversation right now, um, the mindset around scarcity right now is real. Yeah. Um, um, we were awash in cash because of all the acronyms, SVOG and PPP and ERC and all the things. Um, and the field is recovering for certain, but it, in various at various stages, depending on the region and market and all the things. What is real is the cash balances that were had are starting to de be depleted. And so there's a scarcity mindset that I see, that we see even even more than before the pandemic. It's why I'm, I'm so motivated by this conversation. Um, but you said, you know, the, the nonprofit um, orientation, these are mission-seeking enterprises that favor social benefit. And there's a culture around managing costs. And I wonder if it's just as simple as nonprofits don't make money. And so we've got to manage costs. What are the drivers from your point of view around this conversation about? Sure. Well, I think at the foot of it, it uh, we're using a language and a set of assumptions from commercial enterprise. Um, so most of the terms of managerial accounting come out of um, sort of corporate practice. Uh, and then we use them for good reason because they're very useful, uh, but we also carry with them when we start using them, we don't sort of interrogate the assumptions they were built on. Um, so one of the assumptions is overhead um, is an important thing to pay attention to, right? So if you're making widgets in a factory, it's really useful to know the difference between the direct costs that you can directly align with 
whatever widget you're making. And if I make 100 widgets, that cost is going to go up. And if I make 10, it's going to stay go down. Uh, and then what's not in that that I need to make this stuff? And that's the overhead. That's indirect. Um, and so it's really useful to know that because you can make strategic choices. But then um, the assumptions that come, I think, when we overlay philanthropy, um, which um, has a, a thought about, well, philanthropy is there to promote the program. Uh, the philanthropy is to make sure that extraordinary things happen in the world for people and they receive benefit from the work of nonprofits. And somehow that translates into overhead is bad. Right. So any dollar you are not spending directly on an activity or program or event that meets a real constituency is a wasted dollar. Right. So that's clearly not true. Even if you poke at it a little bit, it falls completely apart that that's uh, so I think um, uh, it's trying to use these tools that were really designed for commercial enterprise but use them in a way that fully understands and recognizes the sort of sand traps that leaves for us in making decisions and the sand traps it leaves for the constituents we have, funders, uh, donation, uh, foundations, organized philanthropy, um, public agencies and the like. Super interesting. You say, we just poke at it a little bit and we see how the argument falls apart and yet we don't. And yet our yeah. and charity navigator and funders you know, across North America, but certainly in the U.S. Still. And I think there's an, another layer to the story is nonprofits have this problem all the time. Our managerial budgets have two purposes that fight with each other. Yeah. So one of the purpose of a managerial budget is to understand the cost and income to sort of plan and act accordingly so you can be solvent and vibrant financially, right? You make choices based on your managerial budget. Um, also, your managerial budget is a persuasive document you show to the world to convince them to give you money. And so it is It is a sales document. Um, and anytime you mix sales with trying to understand something deeply and fully, you have a problem because they are at counter purposes. Um, so uh, that leads to all sorts of trouble. I think the overhead challenge is is deeply entangled with that is we can't look like we're spending a lot of money that isn't directly going to program. So that means we can't have a lot of indirect expenses. Um, even if our, our actual business and its thriving nature and the way our audiences or uh, communities find value in it is deeply based in all of the indirect costs that go along with it. Um, so, so for an example, if it's important for you to have an acoustically um, a valid space so people can hear with full intensity the performance of the musicians, that space is indirect. It is not counted as a direct cost. It's overhead. But the actual experience they have in the hall is depends entirely upon the space in which it's being heard. So I think we have this problem of untangling, but I think at the root of it is we have this sales document that is also supposed to give us truth, honest and candid truth about how we do our work. Mm. It's interesting, a sales document reporting and, and a budget and and financial information. It's a communication. You're right. It's a it's, it's a, both and and, it's, it's, and it, those things fight know, each other. Yeah. But at the at the root of it is both fear and biases, right? There's such a you spoke to it earlier, there's such a difference between the attitudes that we bring to business and charitable organizations. I will often say it's a tax status. It shouldn't be an attitude, um, but it but it is. One of the articles that um, this Chronicle of Philanthropy article cited 
was from a group at Stanford who back in 09 talked about something they called the starvation cycle. And there's a chart in there that looks at the um, SG&A costs in, in a variety of industries. And in, I think it's in um, software and other services, maybe like mine, um, SG&A expenses on average are, are in the high 40s down to 15% in transportation. And the Chronicle of Philanthropy, they looked they looked at 23,000 arts and cultural organizations. I don't know if you took a minute to read their research. Yeah, I read the report. Yeah. Um, it's interesting in a bunch of layers, but I think um, uh, there's ways we can interrogate that research as well. But I think that they were doing really interesting work in what they had. So, but yes, it very much stumbles into this starvation cycle, which is present across nonprofit sectors which basically is, you know, how do I, as an external donor or philanthropy, judge excellence? And what's the cleanest and most sort of universal way for me to do that? And overhead seems to come up as one of the measures that helps them decide what's a good philanthropy and what's not. And therefore, a philanthropy knows in a competitive market where other organizations are also trying to get contributing right, income, right, right. they look better if their indirect or overhead is lower. Right. And so right. they either cut overhead or they hide it right? Uh, and they start to, again, so that's why the sales document becomes a really bad decision document because you are now distorting what is actually true about how your, your organization works it's because an external viewer is worried if you go above 20, 25% of indirect costs. So you start to hide those inside the program. You sort of, right. you know, with good intention and, and you can actually make really good arguments that right. something should be direct or not indirect. So you're not being sneaky about it, but you slowly over time become more and more distant from the truth of what your organization costs. Uh, and then you become less and less able to make the case for it. And then the funders have more and more reason to think their original assumption about overhead was true. Right. Um, so it just it leads to this terrible cycle of increasing distance from deep understanding and from deep conversation. Um, that is absolutely necessary between uh, donors and the organizations they might be funding. Right. And especially necessary right now. Yes, because everything's changing. All the dynamics are shifting so fast. They are. And um, expenses are changing. And in, in the context of, you know, the real staffing challenges that arts and culture, other industries too, but boy, arts and culture has had. So new staff, inexperienced staff, new ways of having to do things. Um, and you know the 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 reality is that to do the things that arts and culture need to do, whether they're on a continuum of over here free or just only you know paid and 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 maybe even highly um, price ticketed kind of performance or other kind of curated events, regardless, to do it in twenty twenty three in twenty thirty requires a level of skill and infrastructure and expertise and resources um, to do it that um, I, I, I worry a little bit about our field. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because how we both acknowledge, I love this frame, sales document, and how we have the courage as leaders to have the right conversations that help people see what will be required to thrive into the next 10, 15 years 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly interested in on our sector's behalf. It, uh, I wonder, you and I spent some time talking about um, the, the, the ways in which communication might need to shift um, can you talk about some of your thoughts about that? Like if you were running an organization today and you said, I want to get real about this with my constituents, where would you start? Sure. Well, I think the, the, the main challenge I've seen in the conversation over two decades is it's dogmatic on both sides. So philanthropy on average will say less overhead is good. So we're, we will judge one organization against another based on how what percentage of dollars go directly to program expense. And then on the organizational side, the nonprofit argument is that's not fair. Um, you should not judge us in any way on our interact. Let's find other things for you to judge us by when, in fact, it's somewhere in the middle. Right. So the real argument is absolutely, you know, indirect is complicated. We should be held accountable for every dollar that's not spent directly to serve uh, the people or the mission we're trying to serve, and we should have good arguments um, that are that that really describe the business we're in, um, which includes it cannot avoid indirect costs. So it's more a, sort of both sides saying, you know, what do we want here? What's the goal? The goal is thriving service, thriving mission delivery, organizations that have extraordinary people sustain increasing engagement, um, not always growth, but. Um, they find more and more vibrant and more extraordinary ways of, of providing their mission into the, the communities they serve. So, okay, indirect costs are a part of that, right? So, okay, uh, this organization owns a venue, this organization rents a venue, uh, or this organization doesn't have a venue at all. It sort of, it moves around, right? So you can't judge them on the same overhead. They have different structures. Um, you can judge them in, in part, like, okay, if you have a venue, there's a whole group of comparables I could maybe draw upon to understand at least the bracket. Um, so to me, the conversation has to move away from dogmatic, both attack and defense. Like the attack is overhead is everything. 20% um, or 25% is as high as we're going to let you go and we're going to judge you harshly. And on the other side saying, don't, don't you dare judge me on my indirect and overhead costs at all. You must set me completely free uh, of that accountability. And uh, and again, these are cartoons. I don't think any organization actually says these things out loud, but that's the energy of the conversation. And often the articles that deal with overhead are just saying how crazy it is to judge an organization on overhead, but not acknowledging it's, it's, it's not a bad question to ask about, well, tell me about your indirect costs. Why did you make those choices? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the, at least this research describes that you the, those that overspent actually had diminished returns and and diminished success as defined by people attending as one measure in arts and in arts and culture. Yeah, and I think what the article showed is, as you said, sort of a U shape that there's there's some sort of magic middle. Right. Uh, and again, that magic middle is going to be different by organization and by geography and by uh, discipline and by any number of things. But uh, if you spend too little, you starve out your organization, your, your staff, your buildings fall apart. Um, you, you don't have enough people to actually deliver the service in meaningful and powerful ways. If you spend too much, then again, too much is relative. Um, you're sort of spending dollars that could be better spent on direct programming support. And they're going to things that you probably, you shouldn't, 
either have or you should stop spending so much money on. Um, but again, that U shape is going to shift all over the place. If you're a dance company with no venue, if you're a symphony with a fully contracted orchestra and you own your own venue that's that needs constant uh, repair, um, they're going to be different. Um, and um, the percentage, I think, um, is important to figure out for your organization and then make the argument. It's like, well, this is why it comes out as it does. And let's have a challenging and candid talk about it um, because we may be wrong. Um, we want to spend as much as we possibly can on delivering the most valuable experiences to our patrons and our community. Let's have a real difficult conversation about what that looks like. I mean, we live in the world of the practical um, in our consultancy, you know, and as I listen to you talk, I think, right. Um, I, I want, I want to create, I'm inspired right now to create a campaign of communication around overhead. I'm, I'm actually unsure how much it's talked about specifically as much as it's an attitude around, it's like been adopted and assumed that my job as a leader is to try to hold the line on unnecessary expense as as opposed to saying we're going to expose and really bring forward a conversation about what is the right amount of investment here, especially if we're seeking to regrow after a period like a pandemic that has just disrupted everything, you know, that that inverted you. So we 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 move from scarcity to capacity building and then we move to something called I think they called like you have to inquire or there's some level of accountability. And the way I interpreted that was, OK, we're making an investment here and we're making an investment with an expected return. And that that is what I, I see is required as traditional audiences have declined or are just no longer with us. As communities are changing demographically by 2040, they're going to be so different. So arts and cultural organizations must, they are in a new landscape. And the investment in the new requires investment in resources and risk and other things. So you're inspiring me to want to create a campaign. Good, let's get it done. Arts and um, culture operations. I, think, I mean, there are, there are studies that show organizations with lower overhead tend to get favorable treatment by philanthropy. So it's not just talk. It is true that that quite, a, and, and there's more and more data sources like Charity Navigator and GuideStar that give donors access to information that they didn't have before. And so uh, there is an energy around metrics that didn't exist maybe 20 years ago. That's, I think, raising the head again of overhead, even as many of those uh, GuideStar and Charity Navigator have tried publicly to say, please stop judging organizations on this one metric. Um, so there's a bunch of things going on, but you're right. I think a lot of it may also be the fear and the assumption that, you know, my overhead is important. I'm a manager and I have a, I have, I'm, there's a vague someone out there that would give me money if it was less, if my overhead was lower. Uh, as opposed to a real someone I can talk to and say, hey, you care about what we do. Can we talk about what it costs to do what we do um, and why we don't want to handle over all those costs to the people who are receiving the benefit? Um, and so let's talk about it. Um, so uh, and then being really clear and consistent. And I think the other thing you mentioned really worth noting is um, all of the conventional dynamics of uh, particularly live performance, but any sort of socially engaged public art, art have changed 
to the degree of 10, 20, 30, 40% revenue shifts, different ways people are subscribing, um, different ways, I think, because there's so much social need, there's always so much social need, how people not, not only compare arts organizations for their con contributed income, but other forms of contributed income, social need, international catastrophe, um, you know, health and wellness, the, all that is shifting all at once, um, which ironically needs means you really, really need to be laser focused about what does it cost to do what you do? Um, and what does it cost in indirect and direct? What does it cost in fixed and variable and do all your managerial accounting? Because um, at the end of the day, your decision is, do I do another performance or do I not? Do I cut my season by half? Do I increase my season? Do I open my gallery for extra hours on the weekend or do I close it? Those are all fixed, uh, indirect and direct cost questions in part. There's many other parts, but um, I think arts organizations are making really difficult choices about how how much work to do in the world right now. And to make those choices, you need to have a really rock solid understanding of the cost of doing that work. Um, and so any sort of blindness we're getting from this overhead myth is not helping us um, make choices that are really hard and really experimental um, and will change over the course of many years. And we may never find our, our sort of a stable ground. But um, uh, again, we need real clarity. And, and this the conversation around overhead is, is not giving us clarity. It is clouding us from thinking. Are you familiar with Dan Pilata's work? Oh, sure. Yeah, he's a great. Um, his, his call to justice, um, what, a decade or so ago, uh, was inspiring. Um, and he says a lot of these same things. I think he's all, uh, I think it's worth noting though, he was talking sort of large scale For social sure. impact. And, um, and I think that's really interesting. It's like, how can we sort of, if we spent 50% of our indirect costs on a cause, could we magnify the pie, uh, by, you know, um, exponentially, in which case that 50% leads to even more income, um, I don't know that it always translates the way he's talking about it to what are tend to be smaller nonprofits, uh, but a lot of the constraints that the arts organizations face are absolutely lined up with the way he talks about them. So it's really inspiring stuff. We, I had an opportunity to connect him with one of our clients, um, a, a theater company, and we had this very conversation. And I, I, I agree and know um, um, all, all of those things that you're um, saying have a, you know, it's a, an important thing to be recognizing. Uh, and because of this podcast, I've had a really interesting set of conversations with leaders who are changing um, their organizational frame from only the curation and performance of arts and culture to um, programs that meet a market in different ways that that sort of transform what the definition, for example, of theater is or or classical music. So I'm curious about that. But in those in that work that we did, we took a um, he had an online training called the bold training and he talked about mm. nonprofit prison. And these are the constraints yeah. that you're talking about. He has a beautiful way of articulating things in, in ways that can capture attention and imagination. But, but the, um, the, the question about, you know, our, our patience and ability to have patience to test and learn 
in, in arts and culture, we try something for a season. And then if it doesn't work in that season, we decide that it's a failure and we don't allow it to play out over a multi-year yeah. period. Risk capital, um, how much we invest in the professionals that are running what, you know, in many cases are small businesses, but some of them are $50 million companies. Yeah. And in the media, we still call them groups, arts groups, theater troops, center theater group in the LA Times referred to as a theater troupe. And a troupe. Yeah, they're a $70 million, $80 million <laughs> uh, business, nonprofit business, but business, right? And yeah. so he really challenged that, 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 that theater company to say, what is your, you know, what is your moonshot and how can the, how can the work that you do as a nonprofit really enliven a community? And if it can, if it does, it goes back to how we started the just cause. If it can and does, then is it worthy to start having different conversations, conversations to break you out of prison? It was, it was really interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, the other point about the arts not having sort of venture capital resources. So um, what is it that would give arts organizations permission, inspiration, and um, an ability to take bold choices? Right. Um, and I think uh, sort of patient capital is another sort of phrase for it. money, people with resources that say, you know, I this is going to take a while. I'm here with you. Um, and, and again, that's a matter of conversation, right? Real, candid, upfront conversation in which they're going to have every right to ask you about your overhead costs. And you're going to have every right to argue back and say, I hear what you're saying, that you're concerned about them. Let me tell you why I think you're wrong. Um, and then you negotiate it. So I think there's real opportunity here. And the other thing just worth throwing in the mix is many, not all arts organizations have complex mixed income, right? So some of their income is earned and some is contributed. And that makes life complicated because you're kind of half a commercial enterprise in, in that you are trying to maximize yield and you're kind of not, you're a social service. Um, and that makes a lot of these, again, dogmatic assumptions about overhead or indirect costs or how your organization works and make choices different, difficult. Um, there's a great, um, I don't know if you know Brian Little, a personality psychologist. I just love his statement about what personality psychology is, which is, you know, how do you understand people and their behavior? And he says uh, what he really focuses on in, in some ways, we are each like everyone. And in some ways, we are each like some people. And in some, each, some ways, we are each like no other people, right? So there's, there's aspects of our personality that while well, all humans have a common constraint and, and um, elements of that you can say, yes, all humans are the same. Um, but then there's sort of groups. So well, not all humans, there's, there's places where you're like other people like you. And there's places where you're like nobody else. And I think the same is true for every arts organization. There's, there's ways that a nonprofit arts organization is like every other nonprofit arts organization. There's ways they're more like a group, like a dance company, similar size, similar market. Um, and then there's ways where a company is unlike any other organization on the planet. Um, and so dogmatic thoughts about overhead percentage completely make no sense. Um, that even if a dance company like you in a different part of the world has a different indirect, that doesn't mean you should have the one they have. It means you should be thoughtful. It's like, I wonder, are we the same? How are we the same in ways that we can be usefully compared to them? And how are we completely different in our circumstance, our community, our geography, our artistic vision, our purpose, the people we serve? 
Um, so I think that's why it's it's always a challenge when you have dogma, uh, which just says there's only one way to think about this, um, particularly in a world where every organization is unique in some way uh, and unlike any other. It, the the, the um, philanthropic reality is a reality to you. It's really human, you know, when you when you're on a on a board and you've got people on that board, of course, who are responsible for helping drive philanthropy in the United States. And um, I, 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 I find myself believing that um, if it, that, that there's some it goes back to this personality bit a little a little bit, but there's some basic human thing called if we're just able to run this business more efficiently and with less overhead, then there'll be le- there'll be just fewer demands on the philanthropic need and fewer demands on me and the community when, in fact, especially right now, there are lots of places where philanthropy should be focused. Um, yeah. And I think that's why it's worth saying direct and indirect costs is a, a way of grouping expense that is useful up to a point, right? So it's useful when you're trying to decide things like, should we do another show? Should we do another exhibit? Should we open extra hours? Should we shut down? There's, but in other ways, it completely makes no sense, right? So if you go to a program, a concert, for example, which is a program, uh, does it matter that the venue is safe and clean and, and comfortable? Uh, does it matter that um, there's a staff there that's always there in the box office, not just for that event, who are thoughtful and engaged and well-trained? Uh, does it matter that the elevators actually work, right? So the, the event itself is deeply impacted by indirect costs, but we we need to separate them for a very particular purpose, which is usually managerial accounting. But in other cases, they make no sense separate. Um, so I think it's it's worth just sort of pushing on the fact that almost every framework we use is useful until it is not useful. And if we start using it in other um, places, it doesn't make any sense. So indirect costs make sense in a, in a particular circle of decision-making, makes no sense whatsoever in another view, right? What is the customer experience? They wouldn't be able to tell you the direct and the indirect costs. Um, and in fact, the experience of the event itself is deeply dependent on all the indirect choices you made. Um, so it's it's just really important to not only deeply understand your costs, but also be really, really crisp about when you use certain language and when you don't. Um, and, and that's why I think, again, anytime we sort of say, well, the best way to measure an organization is X, um, we sort of are are confusing and confounding things together in a way that make us less able to do our jobs. So are you talking about this at American University? Is this conversation that I'm going to call Operation Overhead? <laughs> is, this a, <laughs> is this a conversation? Are we teaching young people how to have these conversations? Well, we certainly are trying. I mean, we, we, we have financial management as one of our curriculum, and it's deeply entangled with you know, when is this useful to think and talk this way about artistic practice? And a lot of in my survey, which is the opening course of the, the graduate program, a lot of it is disassembling conventions and assumptions about what an organization is and what it does. Um, and we find that actually sort of trying to tease out, well, what do you think it is that you manage when you manage an arts organization? Um, we can break it into pieces that then we can start to talk about separately. Um, and we work really hard at this, you know, um, there's a George Box quote I use all the time. 
all models are wrong, some are useful, right? So any model you have about anything in your head is going to be wrong because it can't be the whole truth. But it's useful, right? Because it captures the pieces and the, the sections that make that matter in that moment. But you got to let it go into the next moment because that model may or may not help you into the next model. So there's a bunch of ways we're trying to encourage this conversation. And I think our students are really open to it. And they're all great and smart and pushing us back in lots of useful ways. Of course they are uh, in that program um, with you there. Of course, yeah, I just think it would be a great really great place to learn. And that's why I asked the question, you know, the next generation of leaders are being taught in programs like yours. And I hadn't really thought until we're in this conversation about how crucial it is to equip future leaders with the importance and the critical nature of, of this of this conversation. Um, I haven't seen it because it's not been in the Colorado area, but Dan Pilata has just written, there's a movie he's put out about Ooh. this issue of how we invest in the nonprofit space and, and what it means. So there's elevating of this, of this reality um, called nonprofits do things that business, you know, can't make money at or isn't easy. You know, curing cancer is not easy. Um, or raising money for it anyway. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, really hopeful that, the, that this conversation that we're having, the work you're doing with students, his work, and, and, and maybe the associated dialogue that comes out of this podcast episode, I'm provoked by it, um, how we might say financial conversation is sexy financial conversation uh, affects um, your future, you know, uh, resilience realities even. Yeah. And I think the other, I mean, and, and it's really worth noticing the, the, or noting the power dynamics. So it's, it's not quite fair to say, Hey, arts manager, why don't you go tell major donors how they should think differently? Um, it's not practically, and particularly because we're all so exhausted and all the people you're working with, they have enough on their plates. Um, so just acknowledging that there's a real responsibility among those with resources um, to have open conversation. Um, and it's difficult when you're a manager, just like it's difficult when you're an executive director talking to your governing board and telling them how they may not be understanding <laughs> the thing in front of them in a way that's really helpful. Uh, these are usually the most powerful, wealthy, connected people in your community, and you're telling them they're they probably have an opportunity to learn. So there's this dynamic that's just worth noticing about. Well, if you need money for your organization to survive, you will often say, "Okay, whatever it is you say, I'm going to be that um, because I I need this money because it's important." Um, so the power dynamics another place that this becomes really hard, and that's why I think really extraordinary executives uh, and professionals have ways of talking about money and the dynamics of their business um, that sort of either skirt around or or uh, engage that power dynamic in really creative ways um, to say, let's think together about what does it cost to do what I know we both care deeply about um, and um, stop saying overhead. Uh, let's talk about direct and indirect costs, and let's have an open conversation about when that's a useful lens and when it's not, and what's the particular and unique 
um, and evidence-based um, dynamic that we need in our organization to thrive. So that, that, that there it is that I think that you've, you've summed this up beautifully. Um, the, the field is worthy. Creativity, you know, is, it's a must have for people and for communities. Our field is led by people who are either exhausted or new. And there is a power dynamic. You're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about um, how a conversation that would elevate and get people talking and practicing, maybe with their boards. I don't, I don't know. It's interesting, Andrew, what might be possible. Um, I'm not aware outside of it, maybe an academic environment. I'm not aware of a, of a place where that kind of practice can happen. Where yeah, well, they think there's, um, I don't know if you know, Propel Nonprofits and the Twin Cities, they're really smart about overhead and true costs. And I know there's other sort of support organizations like that that provide financial resources and financial advice, Nonprofit Finance Fund, um, where they ha- they help you come up with the language or they provide examples of different ways of talking that might engage a different conversation than you keep having with the same yeah. donor. Yeah. Um, so their view, I think Propel Nonprofits has a true cost approach. It's like, let's stop talking about direct and indirect. Let's talk about what is the true cost of oh. delivering ah. the quality of service we have. And yeah. the true cost, as it turns out, needs a building, it needs heating, it needs computers, it needs well-trained staff, whether or not they're serving the program directly. It needs the actual programs we do require the costs, which we're not going to call indirect or overhead. True. They are part of our costs. Yeah. Um, and they're important. So I think there's ways, there's, there's, I think uh, Propel is a great resource that I would encourage people to see. Um, Nonprofit Finance Fund, I think, does other great work. And I know there's sort of uh, resource and support organizations and national associations that, that have language and tools and conversations going. But I think we always need more of them. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate um, your taking some time to riff with me a little bit about this. As I said, it, it, there, there, um, social media provides a really interesting way to see what is hot, you know, what ignites people's questions and energy. And this certainly did. And having some data from, um, from some, um, thorough research about this question, you know, was that, was the igniter for sure. Indeed. And I'm so grateful that you're, you're hosting the conversation because it, it needs to be continuous. Uh, it's been going on for decades, but I think it needs to continue maybe in a different way. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I think we've sparked up some, um, some ideas and thoughts here that may um, have some energy, um, your energy that you, that you bring to the field's work is so deeply appreciated uh, by me and, and by all of your um, the colleagues who respect and admire you so much, including including us at TRG. Thank you, Andrew, for spending time with me today on on leading the way. And well, thank you so much. It means a lot for you to for you to say that, and I'm grateful. And it's wonderful to be in conversation with you. That's all for this episode of Leading the Way with Jill S. Robinson, brought to you by TRG Arts. Thanks for listening and believing that insightful, daring, and innovative leadership is the way to a more resilient future for the arts and cultural industry. Make sure to subscribe to Leading the Way on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you found this episode helpful, please rate and review the show. 
For additional resources and to sign up for the podcast newsletter, we invite you to visit our website at leadingthewaypodcast.com.